You can keep your fingers there in the Bible. But let me ask you to do something that, that we don't often do, but is a, a helpful practice. And that is, would you just close your eyes for a moment and spend a moment in silent prayer before the Lord, asking him that he would cause your heart and mind to be receptive to his word. Lord, we pray as we look at your word with the psalmist that the words of my mouth and what I speak, as well as the meditation of our hearts and what we consider from your word and how we respond would be acceptable in your sight. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. We want to consider the progress of the gospel. In the book of Philippians, Paul is now moving, beginning in verse 12, from his introduction, which we looked at, and his introductory prayer for the Philippian Christians to now the body of his letter. This is typical for Paul. He'll give a brief introduction, usually a prayer or a commendation, and then he moves into the main meat of what he wants to say. He's told us what a Christian is, someone who has the life of God in his or her soul, and then he's prayed for the Philippian Christians, and in the process, he's explained what it means to partner or partake of the gospel together. And now he's going to express to us the progress of the gospel, how the gospel continues to advance. And the main truth we'll find in these few short verses is that negative circumstances cannot stop the gospel from progressing. Negative circumstances cannot stop the gospel from progressing. And we as Christians are going to learn three primary lessons in the process in this passage about the progress of the gospel. The first is found in verse 12, and it's that we don't need to be anxious in negative circumstances. We don't need to be anxious in negative circumstances. Paul's going to move here from talking about the, what we might call the unfettered progress of the gospel. That is, the gospel as it progresses without much hindrance. But then he's shortly after that going to jump into the reality that most of us face and that Paul was facing at that moment, that the Philippian Christians were facing at that moment, that generally speaking, the gospel does not progress primarily through uh, no negative circumstances. It just has a, a clear path forward. That happens occasionally. But usually the gospel progresses through some sort of combination of positive and negative circumstances. People pushing back against it, and yet the gospel continues to advance. And the first lesson is that we don't need to be anxious when this is happening. Even when the negative circumstances come for the Christian, we don't need to be anxious. Verse 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that what has happened to me, remember he's in jail writing this, he's been falsely accused by the Jews, he's been put in jail, he's waiting to appear before Caesar, all of this is against the law, it's unjust, it's wrong, He's done nothing against the law whatsoever. And yet, he's not having a pity party in jail. He's actually rejoicing as he's in jail, and we're going to find out part of the reason here in a moment. 
But he says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance or progress the gospel. Now, no doubt the Christians in Philippi felt a natural concern and an anxiety for Paul. I mean, they, they sent him a financial gift. They sent him Epaphroditus to bring the gift, this gentleman, to help him, to encourage him. This was their dearly loved first pastor, church planter. This was the man who showed them the truth of the gospel and led several of them to faith in Christ. He was probably also the individual who first baptized them as well. He started this church. They love him dearly. And now he's gone from preaching in Philippi and his other missionary endeavors, proclaiming the gospel around the known world at the time, and now he's in a dank prison cell, chained to Roman guards. And so no doubt they were anxious for him. They had a natural loving concern for him, as we would too. But Paul originally, you might remember, he wanted to go to Rome. He's been wanting to go to Rome forever in order to preach the gospel. But God, in his providence, has said, no, Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome, but not as a preacher, first and foremost, but as a prisoner. But Paul reminds us, as he writes later on from another prison cell in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, even though I might be chained, the gospel is not chained. The word of God is not chained. No one can hold back the truth of the gospel. No amount of chains or bars or concrete walls or prison cells can hold back the gospel. To say it a different way, no amount of prison bars or other negative circumstances can stop the gospel from progressing. But notice that Paul, he doesn't say here, the gospel progresses despite the negative circumstances. What does he say? The negative circumstances have have actually been the catalyst through which the gospel progresses. It's not despite the adversity, it's because of the adversity, because God is ultimately behind it, and he in his omnipotent power, in his divine providence, is pushing the gospel message forward through the adversity, and Paul is a part of that. Just as Joseph in the Old Testament experienced a betrayal and great harm from his 11 brothers, you might remember, Paul too had experienced great harm unjustly in many trials. But he, along with Joseph, could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph's brothers meant what they did for evil, but God turned it into good. What the Jewish religious leaders did for evil against Paul and the Christians, God is going to use for good. And that is a distinctly Christian attitude and reaction. Only a Christian, a child of God, one who has had his or her sins forgiven, has the new life of God in his or her soul, only that sort of a person clinging to the promises of God can stand in any situation, any set of circumstances, no matter how dire, and can respond, you know what? Everyone else might mean this for evil. Everyone else might think this is evil, but God is actually the one in control. He's ultimately in charge, and he means it for good. Therefore, I can rejoice. And we see this down through the ages in the Old Testament, in the New Testament with the saints. We see this throughout church history. They clung to promises like Romans 8.28, which says we know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. That's just another way of saying for all Christians, all true Christians who have come to the Father through Jesus, Jesus the Son and have had their sins forgiven, for those individuals, everything works together for good. Now notice it says everything works together for good. It's a bit like this. For those of you who like to bake or cook, if I gave you a cup of flour and said, eat this, this is really great, 
and you'd try to choke it down. That would be disgusting. Or if I said, here are three raw eggs, or here's a big lump of butter, try to eat that. You would say, that's gross. Why would I, why would I try those things? But if we put some of those things together with a few other things like sugar, we might make something like brownies or a cake or something like that. Together, they work for good, for something that is wholesome and enjoyable to eat. So too, all the negative circumstances, the trials, the the real issues that Christians face, and this is only a promise for Christians. It does not apply to any non-Christian. It only applies to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but for them. God says that he and his uh, perfect knowledge, his absolute power, he can and he will inevitably call, cause every negative circumstance, everything that we see as negative, he will put all of that together along with the good and he will bring something wholesome and wonderful out of it that is for our good and for his glory. It's what the songwriter, the hymn writer has said. How many of you know the hymn, How Firm a Foundation? Raise your hand. Oh, we're going to have to start singing this song, apparently. Let me give you a taste of it, but it it expresses this wonderful truth. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. And then three of the stanzas speak about hardship. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee, cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. My only design is thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. What the hymn writer acknowledges there, pulling in multiple biblical principles, is exactly what we see in Romans 8.28. It's what we see in Philippians 1. That God works all these negative things for our good. He chips away our roughed edges, those elements of our life that are not like Christ. And he allows those negative things, those trials, those circumstances, when we have a Godward focus as a Christian, even in the midst of those, it allows us to grow, to become more like Christ. And what we're told in the scripture is that cultivating Christ-likeness for the Christian and advancing the gospel are the main thing. And so that's why Paul can say, even though all the circumstances are negative, he is in a horrible prison situation. He is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Very little freedom of movement, of course. Very little freedom of opportunity. He is beholden to others to bring him money and food. And yet, he can rejoice. Why? Because, as he's about to tell us, the work of God is going forward. The gospel is progressing. And he, Paul, even through this situation, has the opportunity to grow to be more like Jesus, his Lord and Savior. Is that your attitude, O Christian, when those challenging times come? Do you think about those negative circumstances and how God is working them for your good and his glory? Are you trusting him? Have you remembered the purpose why he is allowing those things into your life? It's for your growth in Christ's likeness. He died on the cross with the goal 
of making you, once you become his child, not only a saved child of his, yes, but a child of God who increases in holiness, who becomes more and more acceptable each and every day to God, who grows more like Christ and will one day live with Christ forever. Is that the lens through which you view your troubles and trials and your challenging circumstances? This is very different than the prosperity gospel, as some have called it, which is quite common in churches here in our city, in our country, and around the world. It's a false gospel. It's a lie. And it says, in part, that God's ultimate goal and and the ultimate goal for your life is your prosperity. But the reason this is a false gospel is is it because, there are many reasons, I should say, but one of the reasons this is a false gospel is because it makes personal prosperity the main goal of the Christian life. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the New Testament says. What does the New Testament say? It says that gospel progress and Christ-likeness, that's the main goal, not your personal prosperity or ease of circumstance. Paul understood the difference. His circumstances were certainly not prosperous. No one would have said that in his situation. But the reason he could rejoice even in the midst of those challenging circumstances is because he cared more about the gospel progress and more about Christ-likeness being formed in his life than he did about his own selfish personal prosperity. Had Paul's situation curtailed gospel advancement? No. In fact, he's about to tell us that the gospel, because of his situation, not despite it, but because of it, the gospel has now gone into or made inroads in the Praetorian Guard. That's the guard or the set of soldiers in Caesar's palace. They had begun to hear the gospel. That's 16,000 soldiers that were housed in Caesar's palace. Not to mention all the cooks and the cleaners and, and, and all the servants who made that whole palace system run. More than 20,000 people easily. In just a short period of time, because Paul would have been chained to a different guard, at least one guard, one of these soldiers, for six-hour shifts each day. So at least three guards are chained to him every day. And Paul's attitude is not, oh, come on, I have this manacle on my wrist leading to a chain that's connected to another guard outside my cell. This is really annoying. No, what's his attitude? His attitude is, all right, I have a captive audience. He can't leave for six hours. He is going to hear about Jesus no matter what. And through that situation, guard after guard, soldier after soldier, hears the gospel. And can you imagine what they did after that six-hour shift? They go back to get a, a meal. They go back to their family. They're speaking with the other, pris- the other uh, pardon me, not the other prisoners, but the other guards, the other soldiers. Have, have you been chained to Paul yet? That guy's crazy. He's happy. What's wrong with him? And he keeps talking about this Jesus fellow. And, and frankly, it sounds really good. And the gospel had made inroads even into Caesar's palace. But think about it. How else would the gospel have advanced into Caesar's palace and household? How else would that have happened? Think of it. How would you come up with a strategy to get the gospel into Caesar's palace? What would you do? Perhaps you'd say, well, let's try to infiltrate the soldiers with a few Christian soldiers. But there's no guarantee if you as a Christian joined up in the ranks of soldiers, that you would be placed into that particular group, much less placed into the palace because they would rotate out the soldiers. 
So that would have taken several years with no guarantee of success. Let's say you say, well, I'm, I'm a servant, I'm of that class in this society, but I'm a Christian, so let's see if I could become a servant in that household. But you, you would have no agency to get into Caesar's palace, just like you or I would not have much ability, even if we wanted to serve the royal family in England, to be able to all of a sudden get into the palace. How, how do you put in your references and your job application for a job at Buckingham Palace? That would be quite challenging, something you wouldn't have a lot of control over. It would have taken years, even if it did happen. But God, in all of his wisdom, he works it out. I'll tell you what, I'll put one of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest gospel writers, I'm going to put him right in the middle of everyone. And he's going to be manacled to multiple people every single day. And he's going to share the gospel with them. How can the gospel be advanced in the troubles and trials that you're facing as a Christian? Perhaps experiencing medical, issue, med- medical issues of some sort. Perhaps you're experiencing financial challenges, relationship breakdown, any, any number of issues. But how can the gospel be advanced in the troubles you're currently experiencing? Have you ever considered that sort of a question as a Christian? Paul here was asking that question. And here's the glorious thing. Paul didn't know this. We don't know the end from the beginning. We see the back of the tapestry that that God is weaving throughout human history, and we see only a small segment, and we see it quite unclearly. But God, he knows the end from the beginning. He sees the other side. He sees the full pattern. He knows what he's doing. Paul didn't realize this. You and I often don't realize why God's doing what he's doing. But if we trust in the midst of it, like Paul, we'll see some amazing things happen. For instance, not only could Paul or you or I never have come up with this sort of a scenario, but God did, where Paul is now in the midst of all these people, he's sharing the gospel, but unbeknownst to him, just a short time after this, many of these soldiers, these 16,000 soldiers, were sent to Europe on a campaign. And in the process, those who had become Christians brought the gospel with them. Some of the first gospel witness in all of modern-day Europe was brought by soldiers that Paul had witnessed to in Caesar's palace. We couldn't have orchestrated that if we had tried. Paul certainly couldn't have. The early church couldn't have done that. But God did it. And he used what we would think of as horrible, negative adversity in order to accomplish it. Paul, to say it a different way, instead of complaining about his sore wrist with the manacles there, that bound him, he looked down the chain connected to those manacles, and he saw the opportunity on the other end of that chain, that soldier that he could speak and preach the gospel to. What's the opportunity waiting for you at the end of whatever chain God has given you at this time, Christian? Remember, negative circumstances need not and ultimately cannot stop gospel progress. But there's a second lesson when we learn. Not only do we not need to be anxious when adversity comes, because the gospel is going to progress, but also we can take courage from other Christians as they face adversity. We can see their example and take great courage from them and also be an encouragement to them. Look at verses 13 and 14. As a result, this advancement of the gospel, he says, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, the Praetorian guard, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That is, the reason I'm suffering has nothing to do with me breaking a law. Paul had done nothing wrong. 
The reason I'm in jail is because I'm a Christian and I'm telling others about Jesus. And that's become well known. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Let me give an example of this, modern day example. Actually, two of them. First, I was watching the example uh, throughout the several years of COVID. I was watching the example of one particular pastor, minister in Canada, the country of Canada and North America, who continued to proclaim the gospel through the whole COVID period, um, continued to share the gospel with his neighbors, even though the government said, you're not supposed to talk to your neighbors, etc. But his attitude was, well, God has said for me to do this. This is what I was doing before COVID. It's what I'm going to do during COVID. And I'm going to help all those I can. And one of the ways I'm going to help them is sharing Christ with them, especially when they're so fearful of their life. And he was arrested several times for this. But even when he was arrested, even though uh, from his view and from certainly the view of Scripture, it was an unjust arrest. He had done nothing actually wrong. He was helping people. And he was giving them hope as a minister of the gospel. He went along willingly to jail and did what he had to do. But interestingly, his interactions with the police officers who were arresting him, again, unjustly, and the prison guards, etc., his interactions with them actually led to several of them starting to come to his church following all the COVID shutdowns because they saw his example. They saw his respect for them even while he told them what they were doing was wrong. They saw how he would pray for them and how he represented Christ. There was a man who was seeking to do what Christians throughout the ages have done, which is no matter what the negative circumstances are, I'm going to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. And no matter what the adversity is, I'm going to still stand up for Christ and rejoice. And we're told in the New Testament in places like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that Christians can take great courage from looking at the example of other Christians and how they've acted or how they are acting in a Christ-like way. We can look at Christians in the Old Testament, the New Testament, throughout church history. We can observe their life and receive great encouragement from them. A second example would be that of Susanna Spurgeon. Now, many Christians, if you've looked at church history, uh, you may be familiar with Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the 19th century. But far fewer people know of his wife, Susanna, a wonderful woman. I'd highly encourage women in our congregation, as well as the men, read several of the good biographies written of Susanna Spurgeon. Early in her married life, uh, she had twins, and shortly after giving birth to those twins, she became an invalid. We're not quite sure what the medical reason was, but essentially, for the most of the rest of her 40 years plus of existence, she was homebound or bound to her bed. Very limited in mobility. And it looked as though her only ministry of, of any import for the gospel would simply be praying for her husband, perhaps, in his ministry and praying for the church. But it seemed like any opportunities were completely cut off to her. But she wasn't, she wasn't content with that. And she prayed fervently that God would give her some ministry that she could do even in her current situation. And the Lord gave her an idea 
which was to start what was entitled a book fund. This was uh, a ministry that she could do out of her home where she would send gospel-centered books that her husband wrote, and he wrote more than 100 books, uh, but either ones that he had written or other godly men and pastors throughout the centuries had written, and she would send those to pastors and church planters and missionaries throughout the world who otherwise would not be able to afford them. And she was able to run this ministry from her home, and she did so for the next several decades. In fact, that ministry is still going 100 years after her death. It's still affecting thousands for the cause of Christ. You see, she realized that the gospel progress, gospel advancement, didn't need to be curtailed because of her circumstances. She's a great example to us, as many other Christians are, of understanding what Paul tells us in this passage. The gospel will continue to progress. And we can have a part in that if we view our negative circumstances in a gospel light. It was never ultimately the Jews or the Romans who imprisoned Paul. They were not the ultimate cause. And it, it wasn't either germs or a fluke medical condition that caused Susanna Spurgeon to have this sickness for most of her life. It was ultimately God who orchestrated these things. This is part of God's sovereignty, his providence. He is allowed to do this, but he has promised that he doesn't do this willy-nilly. He doesn't uh, do this with no purpose in play. He allows these trials and circumstances and temptations and situations. He allows the adversity in the life of his followers in order to bring good, our good, out of it and gospel advancement, which leads to his glory. Like Paul and Susanna, trouble in our lives often appears completely negative. But yet we can come to understand that it's ordained by God, and we, if we trust him, then something great can come out of it. God is up to something, and trouble is not meaningless in the life of a Christian. That produces wonderful hope. If you, if you really grasp it, that trouble, tr- all the troubles of life, and there are many, that trouble is not ultimately meaningless for the Christian, if you truly grasp that Christian, it will change every element of your life. It has a purpose. And unbeknownst to Paul, as we've already seen, many of those uh, prison guards, they went on to spread the gospel far beyond what Paul could as one single individual. And so once again, we see this theme, this truth, that we can have great confidence that negative circumstances cannot stop the progress of the gospel. But not only have we seen that we shouldn't be anxious when negative circumstances come as Christians, and that we can take courage from other Christians and how they dealt with adversity, but also we find that we can rejoice when Christ is properly proclaimed, even when other things aren't happening properly. Paul's going to explain this for us. He's going to explain two types of preachers or evangelists. One we might call the the proper preacher, and the other we might call the pretense preacher. Let's read verses 15 and 16 to get an idea of what he says here. This is a passage that's often been misunderstood and misapplied, so we want to make sure that we deal with it carefully. He says in verses 15 and 16, it is true that as he's in jail, some Christians preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter, those out of goodwill, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
What he says is that there are other Christians who, because I'm in jail now, and Paul had been a significant leader, he's one of the few apostles, he's a great Christian evangelist, because he's now in jail, and at least from an outward perspective, it seems like this wonderful, growing, flourishing ministry where he's constantly going to different cities and preaching the gospel in all these new territories, all that has stopped, or so it seems. And so there are some other Christians, some other pastors, evangelists, common folk, by the way, it's, it's important for us to understand here. The word he uses in this passage for preaching the gospel is not exclusive to pastors or, or to those that we think of as preaching up front in front of people. It's, it's real, there's two terms that can be used for this. He uses a term that just means the sharing of the gospel, the giving of the gospel message out. So this is, this is not limited to pastors and evangelists and missionaries. This is what every Christian ought to be doing. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm still continuing to share the gospel, the good news of Christ, with everyone I come into contact with. And there are others, some pastors and evangelists perhaps, some just common Christians, who, because I'm in jail, they've essentially had a sort of mentality of, wait, Paul can't do it, but the, the gospel still needs to go out. I need to start doing something. Let's, let's fill this void. And so what has happened is more people are sharing the good news of the gospel as a result of Paul being in jail. Perhaps now that Paul was in jail, they think there's a, there's a new opportunity. There's new frontiers. He was doing it, but he can't do it, so now let's, let's us go. And this is what Christ had said, that the harvest is plenteous, but the workers are few. And so now there are actually more workers as a result of Paul being in prison. But that's the good side. Paul actually dwells a little bit more on the negative side. Those were the proper preachers or the proper sharers of the gospel. Now it's the, what we might call the pretense preacher, the one who preaches the truth of the gospel, so the content is correct, but they preach out of a heart of jealousy. Their motive is wrong. This is found in verse 15, but also verses 17 and 18. He says this, <clears throat> The former preach Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me even while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul is not talking here, and this is vitally important to understand. Paul is not talking about those who are going out and twisting the gospel, changing the message of the gospel. He speaks about people who do that in books like Galatians, and he has no time for such individuals. He calls down judgment from God on them, and rightfully so, because by twisting the gospel, what the message they are giving is not actually life-saving. It's not the true gospel. And so there's no place for that in the Christian church. But that's not what he's focusing on here. He's talking about a group of people who are preaching the truth of the gospel, but their motivation for doing so is wrong. It's sinful. And yet he can still rejoice because the gospel is going out. These preachers, these evangelists, these people sharing the gospel, they lack sincerity. They have an inappropriate goal. It, it, it seems strange to us that someone could truly share the gospel in part with the goal of sticking it to Paul, who's in jail. There, take that, Paul. I just shared the gospel. Really? That, that seems very twisted. And yet that's what's happening. This personal animosity, this personal rivalry, maybe they thought, you know what, Paul's too well known. He, he's too big for his britches, so to speak. We've got a, kind of the Australian thing of cutting him down to size. Tall poppy syndrome. I don't know what it is. 
But there's, there's no hint of wrong doctrine being preached here. It's their motivation that's the problem. And by the way, this happens today as well. This isn't just a thing that happened back then. Sadly, even those who are seeking to follow Christ, seeking to serve him, uh, I'll take the example of a gospel pastor, a minister of the gospel, a, a preacher, teacher. We can fall into this trap too, and this would apply to those uh, everyday Christians who are just sharing the gospel with their friends and family as well. But particularly, I've noted for pastors, the temptation to preach the gospel selfishly or with a jealousy seems so counterintuitive. Uh, But it happens like this. Perhaps uh, a pastor might preach with extra boldness or energy because they want to beat, so to speak, or show up the pastor or the church down the road. The, de- the desire to one-up another pastor is, is ridiculous, and yet it's present with many of us. To look better in the eyes of other Christians or, or to have an elevated view in their eyes, which is a wrong temptation, a wrong motivation to preach the gospel from. And yet it happens. This is only one issue we could mention, and, and yet the point is this is still a temptation today. It's still something that happens today, often without people knowing it. But in God's grace and mercy, God's gospel proclaimed, even with a mixture of good and bad motivation, if it's truly the gospel, it can still bring forth fruit in God's providence. The gospel can still progress. Imagine, by the way, if if the gospel progress could only happen when a person had their message exactly right, their methodology exactly right, and their motivation exactly right. If that was the only time the gospel could go forward or the gospel could progress or someone could hear it and respond and become a Christian, how many people would become Christians? Zero. Because we still have a sin nature as Christians, despite our best efforts, despite the fact that we might have a true love for another individual and we want to share the gospel out of that heart of love, despite all these factors, we still have sin. We still have a mixture of motives in everything we do. Even in those moments where, in in one sense, we feel ourselves to be the most godly or or have the most Godward focus, we still have a mixture of pure and impure motives. But God is not bound by our deficiencies and our shortcomings. Praise the Lord. He's not bound by that. And Paul was right to respond by rejoicing. All right, if more people are going to preach the gospel, some are doing it really well. Some are doing it with bad motivation, but the gospel's going forward. More people are coming to Christ. More people are being discipled. More churches are being planted. More pastors are being called into the ministry. More Christians are being bold to share the gospel with their friends and family members. This is a great outcome, and I'm going to rejoice. Nothing can keep him from rejoicing. The result of even this poorly motivated proclamation of the gospel was still that Christ is being magnified. And remember, that's the main thing. The gospel was progressing. And what this teaches us is that Christ and his church must come first in our thoughts, our motivation, our estimation, before ourselves or our own consideration. Is that your mindset, Christian? That God and his work must be the the priority? That it must be the thing in front? We often like to insert ourselves up front because of our continued sinfulness. But that's not the way of Christ. Let's draw this to a conclusion with a few reminders. First of all, as a Christian, what we've learned is that we don't need to be anxious, even in the midst of negative circumstances. And secondly, we can take courage from other Christians as they face challenging circumstances and adversity, both Christians who've already gone before us in history 
and those who are present with us. Thirdly, we can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed, even when it's proclaimed out of sometimes a wrong motivation. We can rejoice even when we, as individual Christians, have said, you know what, I really love my coworker, I really love my family member, I really love my friend from uni, and I want to share the gospel with them. And you, you go through that, um, oftentimes, especially if you're an introvert, you go through that process of... Uh, being scared and having this turmoil. I know I should do it, but I don't want to do it. And Satan's tempting me not to do it. And I could just let it go. But I'm actually going to call them up and see if we can set up a coffee. And, and, sh- and I want to share with them the gospel. And you do. And as you're doing it, you say, I'm not satisfied with this. The words aren't coming the way I want. I really love them. And I want them to see Christ. And you walk away and you think, oh, man, I didn't do that very well. But you can take courage, Christian, because it's really not up to you. It's not up to you. If you have truly shared the gospel out of a Christ-like heart, God can and does use that. I think I've used the example. I'll use it here again, both for, it's humorous, but the the point, uh, it makes the point of this passage. I was once listening to an evangelist. By the way, this is not a methodology I would suggest, what I'm about to say, okay? But this was an evangelist in North America. He had a a rough background before he became a Christian, was in a biker group and different things. Became a Christian, the Lord called him into ministry. He proclaimed the gospel um, in various states and, and preached, did evangelistic meetings. Well, one day he was at a church and a woman came up to him and said, "Uh, preacher, my husband's not a Christian. I prayed for him for years. I desperately want him to become a Christian. But he is a a rough man, an angry man, an abusive man. And I invite him to church, and he laughs at me. Would you just go visit him? I'll tell you a time when I'm not going to be there, so I won't be in the picture, and I won't mess things up. But uh, would you go visit him and invite him to come to one of these meetings that you're doing? So the guy said, sure. So he went to the house one day when the fellow was alone, knocks on the door, explains who he is. And the gentleman tries to shove the door in his face, like, I don't, I don't want any of this. He curses him out, tries to close the door in his face. Uh, but remember, this, this preacher had had a rough background himself. So he shoves through the door, pushes the guy over, knocks him to the floor, onto his stomach, twists his arm behind his back, pulls out a gospel tract, <laughs> lays it in front of his face, says, read it out loud all the way to the end. He reads it out loud all the way to the end. He's like, you are a sinner. The judgment of God is on you. You know you need to request that God forgive your sin, don't you? Yes, I do. Do you want to become a Christian right now? Yes, I do. Became a Christian, came to the meeting that night, and was a Christian ever since. Their marriage was redeemed. Now, do not try this, okay? (laughs) This is not what you should do. Now, I, I mean, maybe the Lord was really guiding that evangelist, and this was a unique set of circumstances, and perhaps that was the appropriate thing, although I, I don't know that it was. But what was going on there? The methodology was terrible. The motivation was pretty good. He wanted to get the message out. The message was solid, but th- there was a lot messed up in that presentation of the gospel, and yet God used it. Now, that's not an excuse for us to be lazy with our motivation, our methodology, or the message that we're giving. But it should bring encouragement to your heart that God can use imperfect people like you and I. There's an old gospel song I learned when I was a teenager. It takes a few examples from the New Testament. 
specifically the example of that woman who had an issue in her blood. She had a medical issue. She had spent all her money with doctors trying to get it fixed. Nothing helped. And then she saw Jesus one day, and she knew that he had power to heal. And so she sneaks up on him in a crowd, just touches his garment, the, the edge of his robe, and thinks that'll be enough, and it is enough. But Jesus notices that power goes out of him, and he stops everyone and says, who touched me? Who did it? And the disciples are incredulous, like, come on, this is a crowd. Like, everyone's bumping into everyone. What are you talking about? But he knew it, and the woman came up and said, it was me. She explained it. He said, go in peace. She was saved. What was the instrument God used to heal her, to change her life forever? A piece of fabric. An inanimate piece of fabric. Now, that's rare, but what God desires to use, what he often uses, what he has ordained to use is human beings like you and I. But if God can change someone's life through an inanimate piece of fabric, isn't it amazing that he chooses to use you and I, those whom he has redeemed? He uses our stuttering expressions of the gospel, our poor motivation, our bad methodology. He uses all of it for his good, or for our good, his glory, and for gospel progress. That's fantastic. The work of Christ, what we've called gospel progress, can only be stopped. We've said it can't be stopped in one sense, but now we're going to say it can only be stopped by negative circumstances if the Christian chooses to let that happen. If you get focused on the negative circumstances and lose focus of what the actual goal is, then yeah, the negative circumstances can cause the progress of the gospel to be stopped or halted. But if you will keep your mind and heart on Christ then no amount of negative circumstances can change the progress of the gospel. Instead, what we should do is take a lesson from the Apostle Paul. Look down the chain of your uh, temptation, your trial, your issue. Look down the chain to the opportunity at the other end. Is that your perspective, Christian? Is that how you're viewing the gospel work in your life? May it be so. And when it is so, we can join with Paul and say, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, we're going to rejoice. And even in the greatest of negative circumstances, we can see gospel progress advancing. Let that be our prayer and our goal for our congregation and for us individually. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we long for gospel advancement and we freely confess that we often have wrong motivations, wrong methodology. Sometimes we're just too scared to proclaim the gospel, and we often get our mindset, our focus, onto the circumstances and take them off of Christ. Forgive us for that. May we hold fast to the promises you've given us. I know there are individuals hearing this who are struggling right now. They are under severe temptation, some of them. Others are experiencing significant troubles, whether they're relational or financial. Whatever those issues are, whatever the adversity is they're facing, if they are one of your children, I ask that they would take this message to heart, to trust in your promises that you can and will work all things out for our good and your glory. If we will give them to you. If we will trust you in the process, 
May we learn from Paul and from other Christians throughout history to rejoice even in those circumstances and to look through or look down that chain connected to us at the moment to the opportunity on the other end and ask the question, how can Christ be magnified in this situation? How can the gospel progress in this situation? And then seek to follow you down that path wherever it may lead. And I also ask for those who are joining with us who are not yet Christians. They don't have that promise that all the negative and positive things in their life work together for their good. Only once they come to Christ can that be applied to them. I pray that they would turn to Christ and that their greatest issue, their sin, before a holy God would be dealt with then and there so that they can begin this new life that only he offers. Draw them to yourself, we pray, and convict them of their sin. Bless the remainder of our time as we worship you through song and remind ourselves of more scriptural truth. We pray all this in your name. Amen.